Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. I am Eric Degatti, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. And, and can believe it or not, Mike, this is episode number 50. And so a monumental episode requires a big time guest. And I think we got one here. Yeah, we are very, very lucky today to have Joel Jameson on the podcast. And, uh, you know, this is this is a guy that I've been stealing his work for at least a decade. And borrowing, uh, borrowing. now I find... <laughs> <laughs> borrowing borrowing yeah. yes well i will say um you know what uh joking aside um joel's work and, and the work that he's done in the in the world of mma and obviously he's he's had the ability to influence other sectors but in the world of training fighters um i would say his work has influenced what i do more than anything else and uh it's really cool to be able to finally have a conversation um you know like i said i've been reading your stuff for a very very long time and uh, i've been implementing it and we've had some really good success with other fighters here up in new england so um for those of you that are wondering hey mike where do you get a lot of your information from well this is the guy so joe we're really really pumped to have you on board today and i'm gonna i'm gonna let eric take it from here yeah so uh, uh big follower uh, joel's work for a while and for those of you who are, who are burrowed under your rock and don't know about Joel. He's uh, one of the foremost authorities on strength, conditioning, and energy systems. And his training strategies have been used by thousands of elite performers and athletes worldwide, including Navy SEALs, UFC champs, dozens of teams from NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more. He's a best-selling author of the book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning. As we talk about, Mike buys another copy about once every other month. Um, and he's the creator of the Morpheus system, which I've been an avid user of since the old original clunky strap that that first came out. It was the world's first digital recovery coach. Um, he's also created multiple education courses for trainers, including his BioForce conditioning course, coach, Recover to Win, and, and the Metamorphosis co uh, courses, which I've done all of those as well. And so super excited to have you on the on the show, Joel. Yeah, it's great to be on, especially uh, talk to somebody who's bought so many copies of my book. I think that you might have the record. I don't think I've heard of anyone else ordering 10 copies of the book. So <laughs> at least I can do is come on. Well well, like I, like we were saying before, I, I've lent it out to so many people and, uh, you know, it's a good book when you lend it out and you never get it back. I think, uh, that book and then never let go by, uh, Dan, John, I feel like those are like the two books I let people borrow if they're young strength coaches. And those are the ones I never get back. So if they're not returning them, either they lost them or perhaps they gifted it to someone else. But I, yeah, I do think I've probably bought 10 to 12 copies of that book. So um, I'm glad that I could finance your vacation house with that. So we're ready yeah, to yeah. go. <laughs> appreciate it. Like I said, much appreciate it. I owe, owe you a dinner or something sometime. 
All right. So let's <laughs> dig in. Let's dig in. So for, for many years, the conditioning, quote unquote, conditioning part of strength and conditioning was, was really a second thought at best. And, and with some even believing that cardio conditioning kind of was even detrimental to other training. And I'll, I'll raise my hand being an old meathead who thought that at one point. And uh, can you talk about how cardiovascular fitness actually is the opposite? It can actually positive, positively impact all of our other physical attributes and kind of theoretically be that tide that rises all boats. Yeah, I mean, like I, I put myself firmly in that I was a meathead category in the beginning of my career. I mean, I was at the University of Washington in the strength conditioning football program side with the powerlifting named Bill Gillespie, who is one of the strongest human beings, I would say, probably of all time. And, I'd, you know, he would bench press 700 pounds, 800 pounds. Now he's in a thousand pounds. So my my career really was on the strength side and, and you know, conditioning, like you said, was totally an afterthought. It's like, oh, go run some gassers, right? Or like, oh, let's go do some sled pushes or it was very much like at the end of the workout, like what do we do for conditioning? Um, and it really wasn't until I started training combat athletes when I opened a gym in 2003 that I realized how much different uh, the, the reality of conditioning was versus what I thought it was. And really what you just find out is that strength is hugely important, right? We, we want to be strong and explosive and powerful for a variety of sports. And we want to have the strength to move around all the time as we get older. But ultimately it's the energy systems and it's predominantly the aerobic energy system that allows us to maintain that strength over longer periods of time than just a few reps in the weight room. And it's what transfers a lot of the stuff that we do in training into the performance in the real world. And if you don't have the aerobic engine, if you don't have the, the necessary aerobic or necessary energy systems, depending on your sport, then your performance is never transfers from what you're doing in the in the lifts to the actual field of competition or into a longer healthier life and really it's it's comes down to energy production in terms of that's how we stay alive that's first and foremost if we don't produce energy every second of the day we die really quickly and you can prove that to yourself by going underwater and seeing how long you can last before you have to come up and take a breath well that's how long you can go with that oxygen and it's, it's not very long and that oxygen is what's driving the aerobic system so you just have to recognize and we have to recognize the aerobic system in particular is the key to life because without it, we wouldn't be here. And the anaerobic system, the strength and power wouldn't be possible if the aerobic system wasn't keeping us alive in the first place. Um, and aside from that, it's it's what drives the recovery from the lifting. It's what drives the recovery from the high intensity efforts. It's what allows us to do, again, anything heavy, fast, explosive, quick, whatever. It's what allows us to do it over and over again. So when we look at a big picture performance, strength always plays a, a role and where that role depends on the sport, obviously, but ultimately our ability to repeat any sort of explosive effort or strength effort or anything comes back to the aerobic system and cardiovascular fitness. So we can't kind of treat it as an afterthought when really it's, it's what allows us to use that strength that we're spending so much time developing in the first place. So if you look at it from that context, you know, again, an afterthought is probably not the right term for it when it's so so it's an essential pillar of of everything absolutely so you know the, the terms conditioning and cardio get thrown around all the time and yep. and uh you know i think people just use them interchangeably but uh you know me being a little bit more of a purist i'm like oh, what are you really saying here it's kind of like uh you know when people say well, i'm doing single leg training but they're doing a lunge i'm like well is it really single leg but you know sure. regardless can you do us a favor and can you give us a sort of a simplified breakdown of, uh, you know, the energy systems and, and sort of what they do? Because I know in the book, you talk about like each a lactic power, a lactic capacity, lactic power, lactic sure. capacity, and then aerobic and aerobic power. 
Can you just uh, can you give us a quick rundown on those and and just I know you could probably do like a you know two week course on this, but could you give us the cliff notes for the individuals that don't really understand this and and how they work? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, we can zoom out for a second because I think it's important to understand energy production as a whole, which really comes down to your metabolism, right? When people think of metabolism as just I burned X number of calories in a day. That's that's ultimately part of what metabolism is doing, but Really, what it comes down to is metabolism is taking the food that you eat and breaking it down so that you can store it in your own body. So we're literally turning the cow that we're eating into our own muscle or the chicken or whatever. We're, we're taking foods that we eat and through the power of metabolism, we're transferring them into our body. And as part of that is adapting to the environment around us. And I, t I say that because that's an important piece to understand what the energy systems are doing. So I'll start with the aerobic energy system, because that is, like I said, that's the system that never turns off okay your your body is always using the aerobic system it's what basically takes oxygen and then combusts it to produce atp the energy our body runs on and it's transforming our body into the adaptive machine that it is it's what keeps us alive it's what drives the the changes from strength training to make us stronger and faster it's what takes the foods that we eat and breaks them down and then stores them into proteins amino acids you know and different constituent macronutrients it's what basically does everything that makes sure that we are functioning human beings and we're not dead. So when it comes to essential life, the aerobic system is it. Now, the, if the body only had the aerobic system, we could live, but we wouldn't be able to run very fast. We wouldn't be able to lift a whole lot of weight. We'd be limited in how much force and power we could generate because the aerobic system takes a while to break down the energy that we're consuming or the energy that's in our body. It's not super fast, but it runs forever. So it's efficient. So the body has developed these other systems, right? The, the anaerobic energy systems. And they basically just mean without oxygen. You don't need oxygen to produce energy. And because of that, they can produce energy faster than the aerobic systems can. But it comes that speed also comes at a cost because the faster we produce the energy, the more it disrupts the internal nature of our cells and the more the disruption causes them to not be able to work as long as hard. So the more that we use the anaerobic systems, the more we start to fatigue. They're just not designed long-term use they're designed to pick a car off somebody if they're about to die or to sprint away actually they're realistically they're designed to sprint away from something that's trying to eat you or to sprint at something that you want to eat i mean from an evolutionary biolo biological standpoint they're what we need to fight or flight right we're either going to fight somebody to stay alive or we're going to go eat something or we're going to avoid being eaten by something and we need those systems for that particular reason and then you've got two of those systems that work two pathways is probably a better way the first is what we'd call the alactic, which just means it doesn't use lactic, the lactate uh, part of the pathway. And basically it just, it's your explosive heavy system. It lasts for, you know, five to 10 seconds before you get really gassed out. It's what you use to sprint a hundred meters. It's what you use to do an explosive few reps in the gym. It's what you use to do a broad jump or high jump. That real quick supply of ATP is already in the body. And then you have a little bit of creatine phosphate that can produce more of it. So it's your most explosive system, right? It's going to be just a few seconds of just boom, high octane power, and you can't sustain that. And the proof of that is go run 100 meters. And you can't even run really past 50 meters before you start to slow down. Most people slow down 50, 60 meters because that's really the peak of the, the output of that. Now, to go a little bit longer, you've got what's called the lactic system. And rather than using stored ATP and some creatine phosphate, it's breaking down carbohydrates and it's creating lactate. That's why it's called the, the lactic system. Now, normally 
when that system is working at a fairly low level, that lactate gets used by the aerobic system and we don't see lactate accumulate. But when we start really breaking down carbohydrates very quickly, that lactate accumulates as that lactic systems create energy. And we can create force and power for somewhere between 20, 40 seconds, somewhere in that range before it starts to really peter out. But again, because we can use it for 20, 30, 40 seconds, it causes a very high level of fatigue. So when you go sprint 30, 40 seconds or a minute, you're completely shot, right? Or combat sport, you sit there and you spend 40, 50 seconds trying to throw a guillotine on somebody, or you're just swinging for the fences on top of them, ground and pounding them. If you don't finish them, you're done, you're toast, right? You're really gassed out. And that's because you've gone really far into that lactic energy pathway. So we just look at it, I, I just look at it as a whole, like the aerobic system is is essential to life. It's always on, it's always doing as best it possibly can. And then whenever you need more than it can provide, one of those two energy systems or both of those energy systems kick on to help make up the difference. But the more they kick on, the longer you use them, the more fatigue you get. So there's just always this trade-off from high force, high power, to less endurance there's just no way around that we can't possibly run a marathon at 100 meter sprint pace because the anaerobic energy systems that are required to run that speed cause a lot of fatigue and we could never run you know a marathon pace because we were just fatigued within the first you know 400 meters we'd be get we'd be asked out trying to keep that pace up so you just have to realize that the body's systems were again designed not to go out and fight in the ufc they were designed to fight for survival or to get your food and that sort of stuff they weren't designed for a five minute fight. They were designed for like a five second sprint away from a predator, or a 30 second sprint, maybe at the most, or to go get your prey or whatever. It's, they, they were designed for very short, high energy explosive periods followed by rest. And that's, you know, really kind of the, the crux of how these systems evolved. It's interesting too, the, the aerobic side is really made possible by mitochondria. This is a whole other discussion, but I think it's worth talking about a little bit. So the mitochondria are are where our body creates all the energy. It's also where hormones get produced. It's the mitochondria are really the most, you know, to the most essential piece of the cell that people are uh, heard of mitochondria, but they do a lot of things. And mitochondria essentially evolved independently and then migrated into the cells, and we ended up with boom, life as we know it. So before the mitochondria, all you had was anaerobic metabolism, and you didn't have the biological life that we have until the mitochondria basically migrated into a cell and there was this symbiotic relationship. And then now you have the cells that we have today full of mitochondria that create the aerobic energy pathways that again, keep us all alive. And so it's just, again, it's important to just think about that as the aerobic system is, is life itself. And that comes back to how our body creates energy day in, day out with oxygen and through the aerobic pathways. So that was probably not the shortest, uh, cliff no, no, version, that was... but hopefully that was a big picture overview. That was as short as I think it could be while still actually hitting the main points. Um, Follow-up question. Um, sure. When I first started uh, sort of studying energy system development and, and looking into the various energy systems, um, at first I kind of looked at it as, as like buckets. Like we're going to do the, the training to, to get the adaptation we're looking for. We got to do this bucket and that bucket and then that bucket. And then, then I realized it's more of a continuum yeah. um, where, you know, you know, I always think about Charlie Francis saying, you know, you've got eight seconds of free energy, right? So, you know, I always looked at it saying to myself, all right, well, if I can, if I can understand how this continuum works, if I can, you know, start someone off um, doing some, you know, a lactic power work and, you know, big, big recovery methods and a big, big recovery uh, bouts where they, they've got five, six, seven, eight minutes to do what they need to do. That's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, depending on the sport, that may not be necessary because, 
I may be able to do other things within that recovery time. That's going to be just as, uh, just as appropriate. So, um, so, so the question I have for you is, is, um, when it comes to trying to target each system, um, how important is the aerobic system within that big picture? I mean, the aerobic system is, is always important, but it, again, when I'm training an athlete or you train anybody, you kind of look at what, is, what does this person need to improve the most, right? Like what, what what's going to allow them to perform at the highest level. And, and usually starting out, that's like, okay, we got to build everything because it all is shitty. And then someone gets to some point where like, okay, this system is a limiting factor. Let's build, let's train that. And we need to improve that. So that, that's not holding them back. And again, you can look, I kind of look at, we can kind of simplify stuff down, right? We can say, look, the aerobic system is what's going to allow you to maintain your force and power over time. And the two anaerobic systems are going to allow you to generate more force and more power. So you kind of look at, does this person need to get stronger, faster, more explosive, you know, have that finishing piece of their game if you're a fighter, or does this athlete already kind of have that side and they just gas out because they can't sustain it. And then that kind of helps me pick like, okay, which direction am I going to focus on? It doesn't mean I'm not training all elements of it, but it's like, where's the majority of my energy going to be spent? Is it going to be spent more building that aerobic engine piece of this? Because I feel like that's what's lacking. That's what's holding them back. That's why they're gassing out. Or is it like their their endurance is actually pretty good? They're, they don't gas out, but they just don't have the ability to finish a fight, or they're just getting overpowered. They just don't have the you know the strength and the the anaerobic side that they need to have. And then I'll prioritize whatever it is the answer is there. So the aerobic system is always hugely important, but not everybody is you know the same. Some people have really good aerobic genetics. They came up in a in a sport or or playing you know some sort of sport that developed it to a high level from a youth athlete so they just kind of have a very big foundation for that and maybe i don't have to spend as much time maybe maybe mma itself is enough to do that and all the other stuff i can do outside of the gym i don't have to spend a whole much time on it because they've already got that piece dialed in then you have the opposite somebody grew up just doing nothing but lifting weights maybe they didn't play any sports uh or they didn't develop the aerobic system or maybe they have shitty genetics on the aerobic side so now this person like they're strong they're explosive but they're just lacking that foundation of the aerobic side. So I'm going to have to go that direction and train them. So, you know, the importance of it is really relative to the individual. And that's where coaching comes in. And that's where having an assessment comes in. That's where understanding the demands of the sport comes in. That's where, you know, if you're coaching yourself, you have to have some understanding of what you're trying to do and what your limiting factors are. And then, you know, plan accordingly. But it's hard to just say, always do this because, it you know, it really depends on what this person, this is, that's going to help them get better. When we talk about these different layers and tiers, just below we, when getting to that anaerobic threshold, we have what's become extremely popular lately is what's called zone two. Um, but we all talk about it, but there's not a really clear definition when you, when you ask different people of what that even sure. means. So I want to hear from you what, what you would define if someone says, well, what does zone two even mean? And how do I gauge that if I'm even doing zone two? Yeah, I mean, it's it's what I wrote about in the book is cardiac output is what zone two is at the end of the day. So, you know, zone two has become a popular buzzword these, these days, and it just shows you the power of marketing because it wasn't that long ago where you're talking about, oh, anything long flow distance is terrible. You don't need to do it. It's slow. It's shitty. It'll make you worse. It'll sap your strength, blah, blah, blah. Now everyone's like, oh, zone two for health. So, you know, if, if you're using a heart rate system, that's either three zones or five zones. Zone two is generally a pretty easy intensity. And the, the easiest way to think about it, if you don't have a heart rate monitor, and you're not using anything is it's a conversational pace. It's about the fastest you can go, but still talk in the process of doing it. And if you can 
take a slow jog and you could have a, you know, a conversation with the person who's jogging along with you. That's about zone two. If you're starting to get out of breath and you can't complete your sentences, that's too high. Right. So if, if you can't do, if that's how you're talking, that's not zone two. But if I can have a conversation like I'm with you now, as I'm jogging along and I'm kind of maintaining that speed, that would be considered zone two. It, it's just, again, we, we like to put things in very discrete categories and buckets, but the body's not really like that. Like the heart's not like, Oh, I'm in zone two now. Great. Keep this up. And you know, like that that's, it's arbitrary in the sense that we're imposing those, those limits on the body. It's not like if I go from like 130 beats per minute to 135 beats per minute, that now the adaptations are completely different. Like, no, it's not really how the body works. It's just how we categorize things. So if you're if you're listening out there and your goal is to get more zone two, you just find a conversational level pace that you can maintain and you go run that. Now, all you're really doing is going at a pace that is enough intensity to cause the body to adapt by building a bigger aerobic engine and the pieces really specifically are the, the vascular network and the capillaries and some uh, eccentric hypertrophy of the heart itself and you're going at a pace again you could maintain long enough without a huge amount of fatigue so it's really because it's just kind of the here's a here's a speed here's a level of intensity that's enough to cause the body to improve but not so much at a high intensity that you can't do very much of it because part of how that adaptation happens is through volume you need to do a fair amount of it, it doesn't happen in 10 minutes you need to be able to do enough of it so you have to go at the right speed to where you can do it for long enough without overtraining without having a ton of fatigue otherwise you wouldn't be able to do enough of it so it's really just kind of that sweet spot i guess more or less for developing the piece of the aerobic system that you need for this long-term adaptation where the heart can pump as much blood as possible and the, and the muscles can use it so it's you know it, it's an important piece of it but you can you don't have to get too caught up in the minutia of it just go out and run the conversational pace or go out and jump on a bike or whatever it doesn't matter what you're doing just kind of find that conversation level pace and you're in whatever zone two you want to call it. So as a follow-up to that, you know, because not only do we not have really clear definitions, but the, the uh, you're the one person that's kind of brought up that, that that's actually somewhat of a moving target, depending on what you're bringing to it that day. Right. To, so depending on my level of readiness for that day, I can't just have a blanket statement that, Hey, your zone two is between this heart rate and this heart rate, or your lactate threshold happens at this much wattage, because if I had a shitty night's sleep, or if I've had poor nutrition, those sorts of things, and being someone who uses the, the Morpheus strap, and when it sets my target, it kind of moves depending on what my recovery is based on all those different factors, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, we just have to recognize that it's all about intensity. It's how hard am I working? But that's a moving target because that's relative to my abilities for that particular day. And these, people can understand this from a strength training standpoint pretty easily. Like if I go in and sometimes I put up, let's say 85 or 90% of my one rep max, sometimes it feels heavy. Sometimes it feels light. Sometimes it feels somewhere in the middle. The same bar weight's not going to always feel the same every time I'm in the gym. You know, sometimes the last 10 reps are actually eight reps or seven reps. Sometimes they're 12 reps at the same weight because our ability to perform, our ability to generate force and power depends on our fatigue levels, our recovery, our readiness, our nutrition, our mental state, sleep, all these things play a role in what we are capable at any given point in time. We're not these like robots that can go out and perform at the exact same level all the time. We have a lot of variable variables that dictate how we can perform and that dictates how much something feels or how stressful something is to us. And that translates into training on not just the strength training side, but the metabolic side training. So yeah, it's, it's a moving target. That's why, again, if you're using Morpheus, Morpheus will give you your quote unquote zone two range about that right intensity. But if you're not 
doing that, you want to again use that conversational pace. What you'll find is that sometimes that conversational pace might be in the low 140s in your heart rates. Sometimes it might be in the mid or upper 140s in your heart rate. Sometimes it might be in the upper 130s in your heart rates. It is a moving target because we are moving targets. We're constantly changing to our environment. We're constantly very dynamic. And sometimes we can perform and we have a great power level output. And sometimes we're fatigued and it's not. So it is about that that variability and understanding that working with your body is always going to be better than trying to create this like, oh, it's always the exact same. No, the body's not always the exact same. The second thing is, where people often fail in heart rate training is they have no real idea what their max heart rate is, right? They're just like, oh, it's 220 minus age. No, it's probably not even close to that. That, that formula was is shit. Um, it was never even de- de- built as an idea that was for predicting max heart rate. So it was. it's not a very good equation to take 220 minus heart rate and think that's your max heart rate. So it can be off by 10, 20 beats in some cases. So if you're using that as your take my max heart rate number and then use some formula to figure out my zone two, but that's kind of bullshit because your max heart rate is probably not that. So again, that's why it's just important to recognize that, you know, you want to have some subjective idea of what you're trying to accomplish here. You know, Morpheus takes your max heart rate from a workout, whatever you've gotten, and we have a a better formula, but in general, just recognize you're, you're not this like a static system. That's always the same. And that's why your heart rates are going to be different and why you want to take that into account. So before you jump in, Mike, I'm going to steal one more and sneak it in only because I, I was writing down notes of uh, exactly that, the the kind of nonsense of the Carvonin formula, the 220 minus your age. Now, the other thing, I, I saw an article that you wrote the other day, since it's become very in vogue by people like Peter Atia to say how impactful VO2 max is. And there's some really good data that shows the correlations of VO2 max and longevity and those so forth. But how much does it really matter for the average person to even know their VO2 max? Uh I mean, this is a tough question. I, it, is, it has become in vogue. And so, look, I think the awareness of the importance of it is important in and of itself. Because to me, it, this is the first time we've seen this mass scale of people talking about the importance of the aerobic system without it being connected to nothing but high-intensity intervals. People are actually like, oh, I need VO2 max. And, oh, I have to do zone two to build it. Hmm. Like, that's been around forever. But the, the general public has not really accepted that. It's been like, oh... I just need to go do a bunch of high intensity sprints and VO2 max is only for endurance athletes. So that's the way the public has looked at this. I think it's important now that people are looking at things differently. I would say for the average person, you know, going into a lab and getting VO2 max testing, it's not super practical. Like if you, if you're a numbers person, you really want to track it, there's value in it. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see where you're at, but I don't think it's something that, you know, it's a make or break to your training. We can look at resting heart rate and HRV are just as good indicators overall. And will give you a very good correlation to what your VO2 max is going to be. Um, the other thing is like a Garmin, the Garmin watches now are pretty damn good at VO2 max estimation. And all they did was take a bunch of people with VO2 max testing, look at the speeds they could run at, at different heart rates, and then build this model that predicts roughly what your VO2 max is going to be based on your running heart rates at your different speeds. And then it says, oh, you're, you know, you're a 58 or whatever. My experience, it's actually pretty close. So I would say people in general, it's good to have some measure of aerobic fitness, because if you don't have a measure of it, you don't really know where you stack up. And more importantly, you don't know if you're getting better or not. So whether you use VO2 max and you go get lab tested or use a Garmin watch or whatever, or you just use resting heart rate and heart rate variability, have something that you are using that you can track. VO2 max is not very practical to track on a lab basis. You're not going to go to lab once a week. You know, the Garmin watch actually does a pretty good job of tracking that and showing you whether or not you're improving. 
um, but have something. For most people, I would say resting heart rate and HRV is an easier gauge, a much easier gauge to look at over time to see if you're getting better. You can look at the speeds you're able to run at different heart rates. There's a lot of things you can use, heart rate recovery, but have some measuring stick of where you're at aerobically and making it better is important. It doesn't matter necessarily if you're using VO2 max and you're going that route, but have something that you can track over time and look to see whether or not you're improving. Cause that's, you know, that's the name of the game. If you're training, it's probably to get better, I would hope. And if you don't have a way to measure it, then how do you know if you're actually getting better? That's the challenge, right? It's, that's why I was, I think it's one reason people have struggled a bit with the aerobics energy system or just, I guess, energy systems in general. Like I can tell if I'm getting stronger in the weight room, it's it, the bar is either getting lighter and I'm lifting more weight or doing more reps or I'm not. I can tell if I'm getting leaner or fatter. That's not too hard to tell in the grand scheme of things. But most people have not had a good gauge to say, am I getting in better aerobic condition? And like maybe they feel better, but there hasn't been the same objective gauges over you know a week to week or month to month basis to say, oh, I improved by 25% or I improved you know by some measure. They don't they, if, they, if you're not measuring anything related to your output, then you just don't know for sure if you're getting better. And if you don't know if you're getting better, it's harder to stay as motivated to continue to do it. So I think it's important to find something, whether that's VO2 or or whatever. And then use that as your measuring stick and be consistent about it. Very cool. So we've got a, a two-part question here, and, and this is kind of you know talking a little bit more about um, uh, intensity tones, uh, intensity zones. Um, so for a gen pop person, because I obviously if we're working with a professional fighter, you're going to be testing and assessing things, and you're going to dial them in so you can spend more time in each zone and energy system. But yep. uh, for the general person, um, you know. How much of each zone do you think that they need in a typical week? And then follow up to that is uh, tell us a little bit more about the uh, the 222 system that you recommend. Yeah. So first question, I would say just as a general rule of thumb, and this has been borne out across lots of different papers. It, it's just kind of the 80-20 rule, honestly, like somewhere around 80% of, of your time spent doing metabolic training is going to be in the lower intensities. And I would say that's kind of conversational pace level and around that and somewhere in that range. And about 20% is going to be higher, you know, and I would say 10% or less is going to be above your 90% range, which is your, you know, your most intense. And if you kind of just follow that for the average person that tends to even out over time, it doesn't mean every single week has to have this exact same formula, the exact same minutes, not necessarily, but just as a general rule of thumb, if you look at how you spend your time, you know, 20% or more can be the high intensity, really get your heart rate up and really push it. And then the rest of the time, the other 80% should be that lower intensity, higher volume range. And if you kind of stick to that, it just seems to work out for most people. Um, and then the way I tend to look at training in general is, is and, and part of that that model is what I call three different ways of categorizing a workout day. And you can call it high, medium, low, or whatever. I call it recovery day. You can call it uh, rebound of training, whatever you want to call it. Then a moderate day and then a high day, which is development. And for most people that have reasonable levels of fitness and you know they have their basic sleep isn't terrible and nutrition's on point, I tend to break it up into two days of each. So two days of lower intensity recovery, mobility, blood flow type work, two days of those moderate intensities, and then two days of the highest intensities. And that's the two, two, two format. And I tend to create this repeating pattern where it's a moderate, then a high intensity, then a recovery. And then I just repeat that another moderate, another high intensity, another recovery, because really I tend to think about how we stress the body and then give it a chance to get better after that stress. And so this is why I create this two, two, two model around or other variations. It's like, okay, load my body for a couple of days and then give it a day to recover and, and adapt and get better from that. And then repeat that process. And if we just kind of look at this process, that's what training is. Training is 
put the body under stress and under load, allow it to adapt and get better, repeat over and over again. And when we get that formula right, then that's what happens. We get better. We get that formula wrong. We either don't put it under enough load and we hit a plateau or we put it under too much load and we overtrain or hit a wall. So it's really about just that balance of how much load do we need and then how much time do we let the body recover. And so the 222 model really does gives us two of those cycles per week. And then, of course, the, with the Sunday off, you have this two day uh, at the end, right? You have the rebound, the recovery on Saturday, and you have Sunday off. So you've got this two day cycle. And really, my goal is each each Monday, I want to try to start somewhat fresh. I don't want to start each Monday with fatigue carried over from the previous week, because then that just accumulates over time. So again, this is this is a model I use for a lot of people, not everybody, obviously. But I always think about this process of, okay, these days, I'm going to put the body under load. These days, I'm going to allow it to recover. And I think about that as I build my programs for anybody, because that really is how this whole thing works. Recovery is what takes your training and turns it into the results that you want. That's how this whole thing happens. It doesn't just happen magically in the gym. You don't get stronger when you're lifting weights. You get stronger when you're sleeping. It'd be time that when you're lifting weights. You, you know, your your improvements don't come in the workout itself. They come while you're recovering from the workout. So we have to think about both pieces when we write programs. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So as someone who's been using the Morpheus system and for people who aren't aware of it, there's some, some real elegance I, that I found that's put into it from the behavioral side. One is me being that meathead who never really liked cardio because for me, it seems so pointless just I'm going to go outside and run or I'm going to go ride a bike and I don't have any metric to tell me how many calories I burned or any kind of feedback. It's just go by feel just because you know, I just didn't enjoy it. Whereas the, having a, the target zones that you got to hit. Um, whether it was for that given day or now the really cool new features where those those are spread out. So like Mike to Mike's question, it gives you a target amount for the week and you just got to yep. kind of check those boxes, um, which from a behavioral standpoint, I don't have to think about it. I just go out and do it. Um, so I find that very, very helpful in, in terms of using that system. But I'm going to throw one back at you because I try to get as many clients as I have to, to use the system. But as I'm handing that strap to somebody and they say, well, look, I don't have to perform at anything. I don't really give a shit about recovery or my cardiovascular fitness. I just really want to look good. How's this going to help me? Now we can explain all the, the reasons for, you know, uh, aerobic efficiency and all this stuff, but like boil it down in, in an elevator pitch for, for the person that says, I just want to look good naked. Why do I need this strap or do all this, this cardio or conditioning shit? Sure. Before, before I answer that uh, happily, but I want to just talk about something interesting that's happening. I, I do think, one of the benefits of COVID, probably maybe the only benefit of COVID, is people have started thinking a lot more from a health standpoint. And I, and I think if you'd have asked the average person why they want to work out before COVID, 90% of them would have said, I just want to look at naked, as you just said. But I surveyed my audience, which is a pretty broad audience, 100,000 plus people. I surveyed them and said, what is the number one thing that you want to get out of training? And a, a lot of these people in my audience are actually uh, strength coaches, as you can imagine, personal trainers. And so I said, what is the reason that you train? Like, is it physique based? You want to look good naked, basically. Is it performance based? You want to perform at some level. 
or is it because you want to have a higher level of health and you want to live a longer life without disease, right? I think if you'd have asked people that question not that long ago, most people probably would have ranked the physical side number one, but it was the exact opposite. And it surprised me quite a bit. Something like 65 or 70% of the people that responded, or well over a thousand people responded, said their number one thing was health and longevity. It was the number one choice by a landslide. Number two was performance, and actually number three was physique. So I was pretty stunned at how far down the totem pole or how the ladder, uh, I should say, people's goal of physique was relative to just health and wellness. It was it was pretty mind-boggling to me because, like I said, I think if if we'd have asked a hundred thousand people who are following me, you know, for performance-based goals or conditioning, whatever, I think most people still would have said, "Oh, I want to look good. I want to feel," you know, that was my number one goal. But it's it's really flip-flop. So I think you're going to find that more people now are receptive to the idea that like training should make you healthier. You know, it should help you live a longer life. It should help you prevent cardiovascular disease and stroke. It should help you have more energy to get through throughout the day. And being, you know, being able to look really good is great because that could be a byproduct of that. Like you, if you're not healthy, it's really, the answer to your question is if you're not healthy, it's really hard to look very good. Like you can do it with drugs and you can do it with, uh, you know, the bodybuilding methods where they're very unhealthy, but again, they're, they're taking so many drugs, it doesn't really matter. But for the average person, you need to be healthy because looking good means your body is burning fat and building muscle. That doesn't happen very effectively if you're not healthy in the aerobic system, which is what's driving the health. It's what is taking, again, the work from the gym and building new muscle outside the gym. It's what's allowing your body to burn the fat without fighting back and just burning the muscle tissue instead. So everything really does start with being healthy from the inside out. It's what our metabolism needs to have the right drive to burn fat and build muscle because the body doesn't really want to build muscle and burn fat. It's very counterintuitive to survival. You know, if, if there was a massive famine tomorrow, would the bodybuilders of the world live very long? No, they would probably die out fairly quickly because they don't have very much fat and they have a ton of muscle that's energetically uh, expensive and they would burn through their muscle pretty quickly and the overweight people would live a long time because they've got a lot of stores of fat. So our body does not inherently want to look really good naked. That's not what we're designed to do because it's not great for survival. We're much better at storing fat than we are at building fat. We're not great at building muscle unless we have to. So I would just say the body is not going to do those things unless it's in a relatively goody, healthy state to begin with, unless our metabolism is functioning well, unless our aerobic system has the ability to create the energy it needs to put into muscle tissue, unless it's willing to burn the fat that it has for storage. So everything has to start with health, regardless of what your goal is from a physique standpoint. And I think if you understand that, you realize that there is a lot of value in recognizing if I'm going to get the most out of my lifting weights and I'm going to get the most out of my cardio, I have to build the aerobic system to some reasonable extent. And if I want to be able to do that for more than the next five months, I want to be able to do it for the next five, 10, 20 years, health is got to be the priority number one. And that's what allows us to drive those higher levels of fitness as well as our better physiques. And, you know, that's just the way the body works. You can't really override that. And if you look at a lot of the, you know, a lot of the guys who do use drugs in their 20s and 30s and they, you know, get all lean and jacked to shit, what do they look like in their 50s and 60s? A lot of them look terrible. They have injuries and they can't train very much anymore. Like they're a shell of themselves because they didn't prioritize health. They just prioritized their physique. So, um, you know, that that prioritization of physique only and it comes at a cost. And you really have to look at that when you're making decisions about why you want to train. So, you know, the long answer is be healthy first and it makes everything a whole lot easier. 
Well, not only are those those trends very encouraging, but it's encouraging because that's the more or less the answer that I have been giving. My my line is jacked cavemen didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let's think from from an evolutionary standpoint, the most jacked people probably died out. There's a selective pressure there. Like the, the people that had the most muscle and the least stores of fat probably died a long time ago and their gene pools probably died out. So uh, there's just a reason that we're really good at storing fat and we're not so great at burning it. Yeah. And, and to follow up on my point earlier, I think the gamification that, and that whether it's Morpheus doing, or quite frankly, like look at Peloton is just riding a bike with a TV in front of it, but because yep. there's, you know, virtual high fives and there's competition, there's, there's a gamification where you're getting people who never did cardio, who now all of a sudden are, are addicted to this bike program. That's just really, you know, giving you some level of gamification, giving you targets, giving you rewards and all those sorts of things. And so I, I think Morpheus does that to a certain extent, but yeah, I want to shift- thing, we're quick one, sorry. No, go ahead. the biggest thing I I would tell people that struggle with motivation because I always found when I had someone come in the gym who was a Microsoft employer, some tech person who didn't really like working out, they didn't, it wasn't their thing, but they knew they should be because their friends were or whatever. I would always try to find some sort of event that they would be training for a 3K or a 5K or some sort of hiking thing, like some sort of actual event people will get motivated to train for. And then they get in the habit of doing things right because they know that there's something they're training for specifically. So whenever I'd have, like I said, anyone coming in that just didn't like to train, find something that you can train for and shit, pickleball, go play pickleball, go do something that you train for and you're much more likely to, to go in the gym and do the things you need to do. So I would just say if you struggle with motivation, it's because you need to find something you're training for that's a tangible thing, whether it's again, to go out and play some game or it's to go prepare for some event or it's to go do something. And now you're much more likely to stay with your training if you have an end goal like that in mind. Now that's perfect. Cause that actually is a great segue into the next question I had. So you talk about, you know, utilizing various methods of different modalities other than, you know, standing on a machine with blinking lights um, and using, you know, whether it's sports specific or functional strength drills into a, uh, a conditioning session, or, you know, like I'll even tell people if they do like to play tennis or they, you know, whatever it is, that's going to put on your pickleball's strap. Taking and, over, pickleball's taking over the world. I don't yeah, know about so you. Like, East Coast, yeah. pickleball's everywhere. Like go play some pickleball and you'll get your ass in the gym more. And put on your strap and that's going to count towards your, your minutes of whatever you need that week. Right. Exactly. So, and, and it's not like looking at some mundane flashing lights and so forth. Yep. So, Give us an example what that could look like if I'm in the gym and I want to do a workout, how we can kind of, and, and I know you and, and, and Luca Hosovar just did a whole thing on this in terms of blending the different things so you can you can check a bunch of boxes at once. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I think I, I've been talking about cardiac output and zone two stuff for so long and people like to have this idea. It's like, oh, just go do one thing for an hour straight and that's boring. Well, no shit. You know, if you're an endurance athlete, you probably love it. If you're not, you probably hate it. But you don't have to do that. The reality is the more types of movements you incorporate into your training, the better it's going to be for you because you are developing different movement patterns and you're allowing your body to move in these different ways that are going to help you. So I build like circuits, you know, it could be a three or four minute uh, um, jump rope and then it could be a two or three minute med ball series and it could be then you maybe you do jump on the bike for a couple of minutes. You can pick really any kind of body weight or low resistance type exercise and you can turn it into a zone two type or or any type of training method really uh, work out. And so you can build group circuits, you can build individual circuits, you can just put people through different types of training movement patterns 
for 30 seconds, one minute, two minute, three minute. You can rotate them through different exercises. You can do it at random. Uh, you can do one minute heart rate of you know 130 and then one minute heart rate of 140. And you can change all this stuff up. Again, the key is just as long as you're working at that right level of exertion, like you know, if you're doing the zone two, it's going to that conversational pace or you're doing something else that's a different pace. As long as you're in that pace, in that overall intensity range, what you're doing is less important than just that that level of intensity. And so as a coach, again, it's it's using the equipment you've got in your gym. It's using things that you know your clients enjoy doing. It's making it fun and, and having some variety in there. I think that's one of the things too, is CrossFit kind of showed us like people really like variety. Uh, people love variety and, and you can have variety in the zone two or cardio type workouts by changing things up. It doesn't have to always be the same. You can mix it up constantly. So when, you know, when I had the gym, it's, it was sled dragging and it was med ball partner throws, and then they go through jump rope and the fires with shadow box. I mean, you can just have people do a variety of different exercises as long as again, it kind of meets that here's where we're trying to go from an intensity standpoint. Uh, as long as that's met, you know, use whatever exercises you want to use that your clients enjoy using and the more variety, really the better. All right. So as you're saying this, I, Mike, I don't know if you could tell, but I could hear the audiences pucker up out there because they're getting all nervous because they're saying, because they know about what about the interference effect, Joel? What about if I go into this, I go and do something that's going to jack my heart rate up and I'm doing some kind of muscular development stuff in between, is that going to steal from my gains? Or once I've broken the seal on that lactate threshold, I'm no longer doing zone two. Do we mm -hmm. really need to, 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 to be concerned with any of that stuff, especially for, for general uh, physical preparedness? No, I mean, for, look, for, for a high-level athlete who's focused on one particular skill and fit or one particular area of fitness, then we want as much energy going towards that as possible, right? Like if, if our only goal in life is to be a power lifter and all we care about is maximizing how much weight we can lift in the bar, then yeah, you want to be aware of how much time you're spending doing other things that might not be putting the same energy towards that. But for the average person who wants to even like I said, look good naked, the amount of muscle you're going to compromise is very, very small limited. If you do it right, like I said, building that aerobic engine helps build muscle because it's what allows your body to take the proteins that you're eating and you're consuming through your diet and turn it into more muscle mass. That happens aerobically. It doesn't happen anaerobically. So you need some of that aerobic fitness anyway. But I think people in general kind of overblow the impact of that at most levels. So if you get to a high level, then sure, you've got to pick what you're focusing on and, and you got to make sure that your energies are being directed towards that. But your average person coming to the gym three days a week, you know, they're, they're not going to all of a sudden lose a bunch of muscle mass. They're not going to lose a bunch of strength. They're not going to uh, fall apart because they did 20 or 30 minutes of cardiovascular work every day. It's, it's going to help support recovery. It's allow them to train more and it's going to allow them to get more out of those workouts than if they didn't do it. So I think it's it's a scare tactic. It's kind of thrown in there by, you know, the the strength training community that doesn't want to do cardio, doesn't know how to program cardio, doesn't know how to put the pieces together, and they throw it out there like, oh, we don't do it because it's going to burn all your muscle tissue. Uh, you know, like, have you seen the NBA athletes? Have you seen people in the NFL? Uh, you know, have you seen athletes that sprint up and down fields all day long and still have plenty of muscle? Now, granted, they're pro athletes, but, you know, they're pretty good proof that you're not going to burn all your muscle off by running around a bit and doing some cardiovascular work. Now, one more thing on this before we move on to recovery is utilizing heart rate within a workout. And I know like within the Morpheus, they don't have target zones for strength because it doesn't necessarily apply, but you also do mention how you could leverage heart rate as kind of a good gauge for your uh, immediate readiness to go into your next set. So can you talk a little bit about like, what should I look at in my heart rate? If I'm doing a strength training workout, I'm not really looking for a cardiovascular uh, uh, 
effect, but how do I gauge and use heart rate as one of my me metrics to know when I'm ready for the next set? Yeah. So in my experience, people tend to rush strength training inside a bit too much. If, if your goals develop strength, then rest is a key element of that, right? You need to be able to rest enough in between sets to, or in between reps, or sorry, sets where the fast twitch muscle fibers that are producing most as much force and power as possible are able to continue to do that. And that takes fairly long rest periods in, in a lot of cases, especially the, the heavier loads you're, you're using. So, you know, a lot of times people will get in this mindset of like, I'm going to do a 90 seconds rest or a minute rest or whatever. Again, that might develop some hypertrophy for sure. But if your goal is strength, you need longer rest periods. And there's a reason that powerlifters, I mean, shit, when I lifted with Bill Gillespie, his workouts take two hours to, to lift and he's lifting a thousand pounds for a reason, long rest periods. So the use of a heart rate monitor for strength training is really just this, this feedback of like, am I trying to rush things too much? Well, if your heart rate's still in the one fifties, yeah, your, your body has to come back down a bit in order for those faster muscle fibers to regenerate and allow, and your central nervous system too, has to be able to come down so they can go back up. And so it can be just a way to kind of keep yourself in check and kind of avoid that tendency to like, oh, I'm just going to bang out a bunch of sets. Now, again, if your goal is hypertrophy, yes, you need that. But if your goal is pure strength and explosive power, you need the fast twitch muscle fibers to be able to regenerate to the point where they can function again. That can take five minutes, six minutes, you know, quite a while. So a heart rate monitor just kind of helps give you some feedback to make sure that you're dropping it as far as you can to where you're able to do that reset, you know, again versus you know this idea i'm gonna go do 60 second sets or 60 second rest and build strength you you might build some strength but it's not going to build nearly the same levels if you're resting long enough to do more complete sets i always remember reading something i believe it was in zatsiorski's book where they talked about how they monitor heart rate and some of the eastern block uh athletes and that if they got above a certain level it would actually pull them off the lift and it was more so because they were getting so amped up they were concerned about the neural fatigue afterwards say so, yeah maybe you'll sure. hit that lift today but it's it's repercussions for the rest of the week and we have this thing you know macro cycled out up until the day of the olympics is that we can't afford to have you burn out because of a training set um yeah, which absolutely. leads just, which go ahead no yeah it's, it's just the more feedback you can have and use effectively you know the better it, it's valuable which leads to your other wheelhouse, which is recovery. And you've been one of the pioneers in kind of leveraging heart rate variability and HRV uh, and kind of part of creating your, you know, Morpheus is a user-friendly technology that, that kind of gauges that. Um, now that we have a lot of these wearables out there getting really popular, what do you see as some of the misconceptions or mistakes that people are making with wearable devices? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them. Look, I, I've been using this for 20 years at this point and I, I'm, it's great to see it have grown to what it is now and it's become so much more commonplace than, than I ever probably imagined. It was very just like this underground thing that I would ex try to explain to people why I was sticking electrodes to them and what HRV was. And, you know, it was it was complicated because no one knew what it was. Now it's kind of the opposite where everyone knows what it is, but but still no one knows what it is. Um, I would say the biggest thing is recovery itself is misconstrued uh, a bit. I think people had this idea that whatever my recovery level is, it's going to be exactly how I feel for one, which mm, it might or might not be. Recovery is not this indication of what your body can do on a given day. I think that's probably the biggest one. So someone's like, oh, I'm 90% recovered. I can smash myself and I'm going to perform 100%. Oh, my recovery is low. I can't do anything. I'm going to perform very poorly or I'm going to get injured. You know, I have people say, well, I don't want my athletes using Morpheus on game day because I don't want them to be mentally defeated if their recovery is low. 
So recovery itself is not really this gauge of what the body is capable of. It's more about what's going to be the cost of doing something because it's telling us where our body is diverting energy towards at any given point in time. It's either devoting energy towards dealing with a stressor that's immediately you know, happening, uh, whether it's mental stress or physical stress, or it's recovering from that process. But we can't predict your performance. We can't predict your injury risk. We can't tell you what your body is capable of. We're just going to tell you what the likely cost of doing a given workout is. What I mean by that is, let's say I want to do a really heavy workout. Now, if I'm starting with a high level recovery, I might be able to recover from that workout, let's say 48 hours, just to give you an example. If I'm starting from a standpoint of low recovery, it might take me three days to recover from that workout instead of two, because I'm already down that hole of having to put energy towards recovery. So if I put myself in a deeper hole, it's just going to take longer to come back out of it. So it's really about understanding that at any given point in time, there's a cost to stress and that cost is how much energy it's going to take to deal with it afterwards. And if I'm already dealing with stress previously that I haven't gone through the full recovery process from, it's going to take me even longer to come back. So it's, it's not this thing where, you know, if your recovery is low, you're magically going to perform poorly. And if your recovery is high, you're magically going to hit PRs every day, or that you're always going to feel like your recovery matches exactly the way that you feel. So it's, it's more about just using this tool of, of management of, okay, I'm already a bit low in recovery. Do I really want to go smash a heavy workout? Maybe not because it's going to put me further back and I can't then train two days from now because I'm still going to be going through that recovery process, but I have something I need to do in two days a game or whatever. So it's, I think the biggest mistake, like I said, is people don't recognize that recovery is not this magical gauge of what I can do. It's more about, well, what's it going to cost if I do something? It's going to cost a lot more if I'm starting from a low recovery standpoint than if I'm starting from a higher recovery standpoint, if that makes sense. Now, would it be valid to say that if you're, recovery, your HRV or whatever metrics you're using is always high. Well, you might not just be training hard enough. And if it's always low, well, then you're kind of chronically stressed or possibly overreaching or overtraining. Is that safe to say? Uh, just somewhat. I mean, the thing about HRV is it, it can do one of two things, right? It can go up or it can go down. Well, actually, three, it can stay the same. When HRV is going down, it's just telling you that your sympathetic system is, is more focused on creating energy right now to develop to develop the capacity to develop or to deal with the stressor. Uh, when your HRV is higher, it's that your body is devoting energy on the parasympathetic side towards recovering from the stress that you've put it under. So if it's chronically low, you're just chronically bombarding yourself with the stress nonstop. If it's chronically high, it's because your body is chronically shifted to try to get away from that stressor that's really chronic. And it's not, it's trying to avoid going to that sympathetic space because it's just burned out on that. And it's trying to put all its resources towards recovery and repair and adaptation so we can we can infer different things based on whether it's too high or too low but in general what we're trying to see is this balance like we want to see the hrv drop after we train and after we put our body under, under stress and then we want to see it come back up as we go through that recovery phase and then we want to kind of see it stabilize and kind of come back to where we started roughly or over time we want to gradually increase that but what we what we're or seeing what we should be seeing is what i just talked about earlier was that stress recovery cycle during the stress period, we see HRV go down. During the recovery phase, we see our HRV go up. Once that cycle is completed, we see it normalize back to roughly our baseline. Now, if you took out sleep and nutrition and all that stuff, that's what you would see all the time if you did it right. But we also suppress it with poor sleep, or we influence it with poor or good nutrition. We influence it with mental stress. So we see a lot of overlap from other variables in the HRV uh, metrics. But in general, that's what we're trying to see is this period where we're stressed, we put our body under load, it causes it to adapt. 
we see it recovery by recovering, but we see our HRV jump up and then we see it come back down to normal. So we're just, we should be seeing the stress recovery cycles play out over time with, with, with these cycles. And if you kind of zoom out and people zoom recovery, I'm sorry, zoom out on their HRV. You see this all the time. Like if I look at someone's six months HRV cycle, I can see these cyclical patterns happening over time. You can see it on the bigger scale than you necessarily can on a daily basis. So let me ask you this. Do you see heart rate variability as the top KPI as to whether or not a training program is working and how well someone is potentially responding to it? Um, depends what the goal is, really. I mean, not necessarily. I would say the top KPI is what, whatever I'm trying to improve, is that improving? Now, now, if the goal is to improve aerobic fitness, then yeah, HRV should trend up and resting heart rate should trend down. But if someone's goal is to improve strength or power or some other metric that's not directly an uh, you know aerobic type measure, then that number changing over time really isn't going to tell me much. But I would say that looking at their HRV trend is really telling me about, am I getting the loading right, which is going to tell me whether or not someone's going to improve for sure. So we should see that someone's HRV is doing what we want to do relative to their ability to recover. And if we do that, they're going to get better. And I can just tell you in Morpheus, you know, if we keep someone's recovery above about 80%, we're on the right track. If someone's on a, on a weekly basis, if someone's recovery is below 80% on a weekly basis, we're probably not doing the right things. And it could be lifestyle driven or it could be train driven or probably it's it's both because the lifestyle always sets the limits of what your training should or can be. So, you know, my goal is always, am I improving, you know, what I want to improve, yes or no? And if the answer is no, then usually I can see why by looking at their HRV. All right. So we've gone uh, through a whole bunch of different training stuff. And as someone who's, as I said, followed your work and been doing the Morpheus stuff for quite a while, I have a few other questions. Sure. Number one, is Dan Hubley real or is he AI generated? <laughs> I wish Dan was AI because then I could replicate or, his ass. I would say, or either that or, either that or he is part cyborg because he answers every question, every email, every Facebook post, yes. like instantly. Like, I don't think he sleeps. I don't know if he eats. Like, let's, let's, let's not, remarkable. let's not, let's make sure his wife doesn't listen to this one. Cause I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sure his family, his family is not uh, uh, getting as much time as they probably want because he is a machine. As you said, he answers everything all the time. Uh, I mean, I'm three hours behind him in Washington. And when I'm in Hawaii, I'm six hours behind him. And it'll be like nine o'clock here. And it'll be in the middle of the night there. And he'll, he'll I'll like post something on Slack that I expect an answer the next day. I'm like, boom, I get an answer from Dan. I'm like, Dan, go to sleep. Like what, why are you answering this at like two in the morning? Like, what are you doing? So yeah, he is, he is, I wish, I wish he was AI because then I could just replicate him and, and, uh, and make it easier on him. But uh, you know, he he is a hell of a worker. And he used to work for Lifetime Fitness, actually, is where I met him. He ran the metabolic testing and did a whole bunch of stuff with the trainers at, at metabolic or in the metabolic realm at Lifetime. And uh, he came over a few years ago. And yeah, he's he's amazing. And and he works his ass off to make sure that everybody that's using Morpheus gets their questions answered and they're doing the things they need to. I mean, the amount of questions we can get, we get, as you can imagine, is is pretty high. And, and some questions are, you know, probably easier to deal with than, than others. So we see a range of people who have never heard of a heart rate. I mean, it boggles my mind that some people like have never seen a heart rate monitor before. I mean, there's a fair number of people or Morpheus who are like, how do I put this stress strap on? Like, what is this thing? So you get people who are just absolute beginners. And then you get people asking extremely detailed questions about diet and training. And Dan answers them all. So he's Dan is the man, as I say.
He is. And he answers everyone from, like you said, the most complex to some of the, the uh, you know, on the Facebook or some of these, some of the, quite frankly, the dumbest questions I've ever heard in my life. Um, there's, there's some pretty bad <laughs> questions. We have, we have a wall of fame somewhere that we probably shouldn't share, but it, it, it boggles my mind sometimes the questions that, that people ask, but you know, we, we still answer them. Um, all right. And then the other thing is, you know, usually if, if an email comes in from you and it's offering something, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker and I'm there for it. The one thing I, I have not taken you up on is yep. coming out to Seattle for the helicopter ride. I just uh, don't know if I could do it. So, so explain the, the fascination with choppers. Do it. Explain the fascination with, with choppers. Oh, I mean, if you've flown chopper, you, you know the fascination with them. I mean, my family fly stuff. That's just kind of what we do. It's I've got nine pilots in the family. We've flown everything from triple sevens to Blackhawks to jets to, you know, really anything in between. So my family, I, I just grew up around aviation. I started flying airplanes when I was 13 and sold when I was 16. I started flying helicopters eight, eight or nine years ago, like nine years ago now. And uh, it's just the most fun thing ever. So if you've never flown one, you've never been in one, then you probably don't know, but one of these days come out of Seattle and maybe you'll find out. All right. That's on the bucket list. And and, and you definitely are a <laughs> list of one of, of people we've interviewed who also fly helicopters. Yeah. Actually, um, you know, one, of the, one of the more fun helicopter flights I've done in the last few years was I was in New York city to speaking of the East coast. And we flew basically doors off at night through Manhattan and through like all of downtown New York city. It was pretty spectacular. I was like 50 feet off the, Statue of Liberty, and we were flying just literally right through the middle of the city. It was awesome. So that's that's one thing that's really great about helicopters uh, is airplanes have some rules about how far they have to stay away from stuff, which makes sense because they can't stop and they can't hover. And so you have to be a certain height above everything, lateral 2,000 feet and 1,000 feet above the cities. Uh, and in helicopters, we don't have to do that. So I can fly right down the middle of the city if I want to, as long as I have permission to fly in the airspace that uh, the city's in. And New York was surprisingly accommodating. They let us just fly right down through the middle of the city and hover over Fenway and do all kinds of fun stuff. So hel helicopters can just go a lot more uh, fun places. We can get a lot closer stuff. I can see people's computer screens in their office buildings as I fly by them. And I can do all kinds of stuff that I could never do in airplanes. So they are a hell of a lot of fun. Add it to the list of shit we got to do, Mike. Mike, any closing thoughts before we wrap up with Joel? No, I mean, I would keep him here all day and, and I'm sure he has better things to do than listen to me. But um, Joel, I just want to say thank you so much for, you know, for today's podcast. And and I think I speak for, you know, hundreds and, and, and thousands of strength coaches uh, by just saying thank you for putting out uh, Ultimate MMA Conditioning because it's uh, it's definitely one of those books that um, I feel like every single coach should have. And uh, if you don't have that book, go ahead and buy it because it is phenomenal. You don't have to buy 10 to 12 copies like I did. But um, you should absolutely go out and get it because um, it is a phenomenal resource when it comes to energy system development. And who knows, maybe there'll be another part two someday, Joel, right? Yeah, one of these, maybe one, one of these days, you know, if I get around to it, I, I should at some point you know, at least fix the typos, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but at this point, like you said, if it's not broke, I won't, I won't fix it. But, you know, look, I, I really appreciate you and everybody else out there reading the book and, and applying the stuff that I've put out there over the years. I mean, I don't claim to have ever reinvented the wheel all i've really tried to do is synthesize information that i felt i didn't know the answers to and then once i understood it very well or at least as best i could i then tried to make it easily understandable for everybody else in the field so i've just tried to you know again kind of play that role of if i don't know the answer to something i want to figure it out and i like sharing whatever it is i've learned and helping other people 
use the same information in a, in a meaningful way. And when I first got into combat sports, there was nothing out there. I mean, I had conversations with Martin Rooney. He'd been training fighters, but there was so little else out there of, of anything about training fighters. Everything about energy systems was like a textbook, uh, boring as shit and not applicable and wasn't very you know practical to me to use. And so I just spent a lot of time learning the answers and trying to figure out how this whole thing worked. And then I just wrote the book to share what I'd learned. So um, I, it's really great to hear from people like yourself that have taken that time because I did spend a lot of late nights writing that thing and cranking it out and you know not knowing whether people would buy it. And so the fact that it's been read and more importantly, it's been used by a lot of people to help athletes and help people is 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 awesome. And then I, it's really great to hear from someone like yourself and anyone else that's that's used the book. It's great stuff. And in our course, when we talk about program design, we, when we get to conditioning, we're like, we're not going to tell you anything that Joel couldn't already. So we just send him over to you for that stuff. So um, yeah, with that, um, I, I mentioned earlier, you're doing some, a new project with Luca Josevar, who we had on the show about a month or so ago, who was awesome. Tell us about some other new and exciting things we got coming up in 2023 and beyond for you. Yeah. So when we talked about recovery, I'm actually going to do a new certification course, which I haven't done since 2016 uh, on recovery and resilience. Um, I probably, I did the recovery to win course, which is, you know, a good overview for kind of everybody, but I wanted to really dial into recovery in a deeper level, especially now that we have a lot of Morpheus and we have the data and we have the Morpheus, uh, coaching platform for coaches to see all the stuff that Morpheus is generating from their clients. So I'm going to do a recovery regen cert, uh, probably around October or fall of this year. That's really the next big thing. And then I'm going to take the, the, Morpheus platform that you've been using, and we're going to add a whole bunch of new cool features into it later in the year, like the ability to create workouts, which will just be a series of different interval methods and to share those workouts with your clients, all sorts of stuff. On those ends, we're going to add an Apple Watch app and just really continue to build up the Morpheus platform. So um, lots to come for sure. Love it. Well, keep up the great work. And as I've been saying all along, if you're a trainer, you're a coach out there, you got to get some of the stuff. Everything that I've done along the way has been top notch and uh, can't wait to get into the next thing you put out. So want to thank you for your work, Joel. Want to thank you, Mike, for your contributions today. And, and also want to thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.